Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you are here this evening. Uh, I don't know where Clark went. Hopefully he'll be back, but feel free when he comes back. You can grab a drink, get up and move around. We're not going to be too worried about that. But my name is Justin. If this is your first time, welcome. This is my good friend Brian, and you're at Theology on Tap. Tonight, I'm really excited. This is one of my, We did this last year, and I'm really excited for the continuation of it this year. Uh, but if you are new, you will see these little sheets of paper laying around the room, hopefully. Hopefully the air conditioning or fans haven't blown them off. But uh, these are important because the way this evening works is uh, Brian and I are going to talk for 20, 25 minutes, something like that. And then you can, uh, for the second half of our time, uh, you, what you can do really at any point of this evening, scan this top QR code and you can ask any question whatsoever. Do we have somebody who's moderating the questions tonight? Right. Rex, awesome, fantastic. So Rex will see the questions. Go ahead, uh, as you submit those, you can like other ones that you see and the ones with the most, most likes will kind of come up to the top. So Rex will look at those and then he'll pose them to us and we'll do our best efforts to answer those uh, as briefly, as quickly as we can. Um, but I'm really excited for tonight. Brian, do you want to tell them why all these books are up here and what we're going to do with them? Uh, yes. So Justin and I, in case you have not figured this out or if you are new, uh, we are trying to make nerddom cool again. Uh, we, it's a futile task. It is futile, but we try anyway. But uh, we both love to read and we love to talk about what we read. And last year when we did a talk on summer reading and things that we loved, book-wise that we'd been influenced by, and books that we were hoping to read, um, people really responded to it and asked us to actually do it again. So um, that is what we are doing. And Justin suggested that I kick off um, reading this quotation. This is my book bag uh, that is from Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford, which is arguably the coolest bookstore in the entire world. Uh, but it has this great quotation on the back, and it says, I seek few treasures except books, the tools of those celestial souls the world calls fools. Happy the morning giving time to stop an hour at once in Basil Blackwell's shop, there in the broad, within whose booky house half of England's scholars nibble books or browse. Where'er they wander, blessed fortune theirs, books to the ceiling, other books upstairs, books doubtless in the cellar, and behind romantic bays where iron ladders wind, and in odd nooks sometimes in little shelves, Lintots and Thompson's calf-bound dainty twelves. The calf-bound dainty twelves are series of novels that were published in the Victorian era. But this is about the glories of this bookstore. If you ever go to Oxford, please go there. Um, one or two of the books in my stack came from there, which is kind of fun. That is really cool. You would have that bag. I, I love would. it. That's fantastic. Um, so our hope is that we're going to fly through some of these, tell you, uh, I mean, most of these we have been largely influenced by, things we found really helpful or really enjoyed. We're going to share that. We love sharing that sort of thing with you. Uh, we also have a few, at least I do, books that I'm excited to read this mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. So we'll end maybe with that. But what do you want to start with tonight? Um, I will start with this one because this is... Uh, you can tell this is really old and well-loved. Um, if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, um, this picture actually looks sort of like that, which is sort of like what my campus fellowship was like when I was in college in the late 1970s. Ouch. Um, but this is a great book. It's called Christian Counterculture. It is a book-length uh, meditation and exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most important teaching by a guy named John Stott, who's arguably the greatest Anglican uh, scripture expert of the past 100 years, and he was chaplain to Queen Elizabeth, which is kind of cool. Um, but I just wanted to read a little section out of here about why I love this book so much. So uh, Stott says this in the introduction. To me, the key text of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Do not be like them. It is immediately reminiscent of God's word to Israel, you shall not do as they do. There is no paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount in which this contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. It is the underlying and uniting theme of the sermon. Thus, the followers of Jesus are to be different, 
different from both the nominal church and the secular world, different from both the religious and the non-religious. But it is a fantastic book, so highly recommend I love it. John Stott. He is, so, any, heard of John Stott? Anyone? Okay. He is excellent. So, um, he's no longer uh, alive, but he was a British evangelical uh, of the 20th century, one of the leading, like, got figures in mm-hmm. evangelicalism. But the, the British evangelicals, I found John Stott was one of them, J.I. Packer, what was the, was it Gordon Wenham? And yeah. uh, who was the other? Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner. Some of these guys yeah. were just really good at being concise, which is helpful. Yeah. But and brilliant. brilliance and with a, deeply de- spiritual. a, a devotional yeah. spiritualism, thank you, um, to it that, wow. Yeah, that was nice. Clark wasn't here. And I had I was, to go back there and get my own wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did? That was smart. Clark, I love you, man. It's all good. I felt free to go get it because you already poured it. Clark is the best. Thank you. All right. um, So I've got a couple things here, things that I have read, things that I'm excited to read. So uh, this is, look at me quoting Lewis before you tonight. I mean, I just feel, so C.S. Lewis, uh, one of our favorites, probably definitely your favorite, (laughs) but he's, he's near the top of my list as well. The Abolition of Man, which is one of the harder books to read. I remember reading it in college when I took a C.S. Lewis class, and I was like, what in the world is he talking about? And you had an article that talked about, so there, Lewis wrote this, it's, it's pretty short, it's not like Look super long. I know, but we're gonna do this perfectly yep. here. So uh, it's a, basically like an essay almost, a sustained essay that was really tricky, but he said it was probably the most important thing that, that he ever read. wrote. And it's prophetic in many ways, and I don't use that lightly because he's writing in the mid-20th century, and so much of our world that's unfolding right now is exactly what he talked about. And it's a lot to do with the education system, that sort of thing. But I struggled with understanding it. Thankfully, one of the leading scholars besides uh, Brian McGreevy, Michael Ward, wrote this book called After Humanity, which is a like line-by-line guide that I'm super excited. Our bishop required this, and I'm so excited to be with a bishop who's like said, all right, we're going to read this book together and use this little commentary. But uh, So I'm excited to read After Humanity, which is the step-by-step guide to the abolition of man, which I've read before. Um, but this is the fiction version, right? Something yes. along those lines? Yes. So uncharacteristically, C.S. Lewis, he liked uh, to keep things hidden and make people speculate Um, He did actually write in the introduction to That Hideous Strength, which is the last book in the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy, which is fiction. Um, He said that he, in this book, was making the same points that he was making in The Abolition of Man. And this book, That Hideous Strength, um, is one of the most crazily prophetic books you could ever read. And one of the things that's really striking about it, how many of y'all that are in the finance world have ever heard of Business Insider? So Business Insider is like a huge thing. Um, They won the Pulitzer Prize. They have five million plus subscribers. It's usually about investment strategy and things that are going on in the financial world. But they had a cover story on that hideous strength. And the guy that wrote this is not even a Christian. But he had been reading, and this, this came out um, right at the end of the pandemic, and he was saying, it's not Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. It's not George Orwell, 1984. It is actually C.S. Lewis. And I love the way he writes this. He says, both Huxley and Orwell were fundamentally the same type of dude as the people whose ideas they were critiquing. Socialists, materialists, progressives, So both their dystopias are stories of shattered idealism. Lewis, on the other hand, is not that type of dude. Well, you can say that again. Uh, But one of the things that is so amazing in this book is it talks about everything that's going on in our culture right now, what's going on with the media, what's going on in the education system, um, what's going on in the world of science. And the crazy thing, it was written in 1943 but it will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. 
And it is also just a really well done, gripping narrative. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's a good one. So Abolition of Man. And also, if you decide to read this, um, I actually did a class on the Abolition of Man and that hideous strength. So the podcast is out there. So if you want my voice to lull you to sleep at night as you read in bed, um, you can turn that on. No. That's even better than Michael Ward's commentary on the abolition of man, <laughs> is your wonderful narration and uh, commentary on that hideous strength. So those are hugely important books. Excited to, to check that out. We have a wide variety of books that we're talking about here, um, but one that I am almost finished with we talk about beauty a lot, the role, you know, truth and goodness are, are very important, but we, we do think that there's a really significant role that beauty plays in the life of the Christian. And so I remember going to school and taking like art history and stuff like that, but I don't remember so much of those classes, I guess. But this book called Rembrandt in the, is in the Wind by Russ Ramsey. Uh, what he does, it was kind of amazing because I was going over overseas and I had like two days in Paris and so I went to and why did you have two days in Paris because you told me you have to go to Paris and he obeyed and I I trust you enough to obey you Um, was I right you were spot on right I'm so thankful that you knew exactly where to go what to see Uh, but I just happened to like bring this book and it was totally God's providence in all this because I was like, man, I'm going to this beautiful city that has all this beautiful art and architecture, and I know nothing. And we talk about beauty all the time, and I know it's important, but I, I don't know why. And so this book was amazing because it talked about some of the you know, major figures. I'd heard of, like, okay, Michelangelo's David, um, Rembrandt, Vermeer, a lot of these artists that probably you've heard, but, like, he tells their stories, their lives, and how they're – and actually, like, analyzes art and I feel like oh this is this is good I finally know how art is analyzed or whatever but one of the things that I wanted to point out was just the story of Caravaggio and uh, he was a pretty interesting character because he had quite a um, I mean the chapter on him is called the sacred and the profane Caravaggio and the paradox of corruption and grace so he was um, a very kind of licentious person who, who lived uh, a, a very extreme life but could paint and painted mm-hmm. just things that would make people weep. And I wanted to read, this was um, something in that chapter that, that I wanted to, to share. If you don't know Caravaggio, do yourself a favor and Google some of his work. Uh, it's amazing. I actually did an entire sermon on one of his paintings yeah, so his, his life is pretty sad in many ways to, to hear kind of his death, but he was constantly somebody who was like in the, the grips of addiction in many ways. And so it says, he knew what it was like to have the ability to render beauty that could bring a person to tears and yet remain unable to live free from his own destructive behavior. His life reminds us that we who embody the sacred and the profane have an enormous capacity to hurt each other. Caravaggio lived a destructive life, but his art shouts into that chaos that just as Christ could call the tax collector to follow him or draw from the recesses of the hardest heart the beauty and wonder that poured out of Caravaggio between his seasons of carnival, our Lord's capacity to extend grace is greater still. And grace transforms even the hardest of hearts. So when you look at some of the pain, I mean, so many beautiful things in this book that just was at the right time for me going to view. And um, it it was kind of like a refresher on art history. But if you're wondering, like, yeah, I I think beauty is important, but I don't know kind of where to begin. Rembrandt is in the Wind is a great book. It is a great book. And the the title of it comes from the most, most famous art theft ever. Um, where this Rembrandt masterpiece was robbed out of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, and it's never been recovered. So, fascinating. Crazy. All right, so this is a short book. Uh, If you were like me and you always wanted to read The Red Badge of Courage when you were in high school, because it was the shortest book on the required summer reading (laughs) list. Um, This is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you may know, was a German pastor uh, in World War II. He was part of the Confessing Church and uh, stood up against Hitler and preached against Hitler, was arrested and put in a concentration camp. And he was actually the last, one of the last people executed uh, by the Germans in World War II by Hitler's direct order. But he wrote while he was in the concentration camp this profound meditation on the idea of friendship and community among Christians. And it is, I think it's just a really important book. We live in a very individualistic, isolated age. You probably saw last week, the Surgeon General issued a notice saying there was a national emergency and the national emergency was an epidemic of loneliness, especially people in y'all's age range. But I wanna just read this little bit here about what he has to say about why fellowship is so important. He says, God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word of God, he cannot help but speak it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of another man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belonging the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And this is full of stuff like That's that. So it is so good. Yeah. The incredible power that we have as brothers and sisters in the faith. And I love that the image of like, when, when one of us is weak, you almost want to go up. And that's kind of what he's saying. It's just like, let my faith be strong right. for yeah. you right now. And let me carry you when you have a heart. Like, that's what we're meant to do is to, to build one another up and bear one another's burdens, right? And that book is so good. Bonhoeffer's great. All right. Um, so kind of the next book or series of books that I have here uh, has to do with a little bit of my own story. So I grew up in the Episcopal world, Anglican church and kind of hated the whole formality of it to be honest with you i didn't like that we did the same thing every week and i was like this is kind of it just means nothing to most people especially me so i went off to college and went to a baptist church where i was like man they actually like they preach for 45 minutes and they really mean what they say um people actually felt like i mean i felt like they were really um they weren't just waiting to go to uh, they weren't just waiting to go to lunch afterwards, which is what I felt like. That was so I'm awkward. Just terrified of this man. <laughs> you should have seen the expression. I couldn't even look at the dude. I'm sorry. Oh man. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. Somebody, for those sorry. listening, that was somebody who just walked in from up above. It wasn't the Lord. Um, <laughs> from the roof deck bar. <laughs> he was just a startle. Um, all right, I'm just gonna start over. So uh, I basically was like, man, this is really, like the Christian faith started to mean something to me. It was weird. I was reading the Bible for my own and like was eating it up. I was loving 45 minute sermons. And I'm like, who does that? Like that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It was very strange. Um, and one of the things by the end of college, I was like, you know, I grew up in this very different tradition where like the sacraments were a big deal. And I don't quite understand, like maybe they're kind of tangential, like how do I make sense of this? And uh, they, they almost never really quoted people from like the past, like beyond 100 years, you know? So um, they loved the Reformation. So I was like, all right, I'll start to read some of the reformers. And like one of them, John Calvin. So I've read, um, oh wait, this I, we just turned off a ton of people at the other door there too, sorry. This is amazing. Um, so I've read like probably three quarters of uh, Calvin's That's Institutes, a lot. which is a lot. I did go to a Presbyterian seminary, but for those who are not like, first of all, you can read old books. Last time yes. we brought Augustine's Confessions, which is like an incredibly important book. Uh, you had Athanasius, Athanasius's uh, on, on the, the incarnation, incarnation, really short, much much shorter than this. 
but you can actually make your way through it. Don't be daunted by it. And if you're scared of it, there are, you know, things like commentaries Guide like books. this. Guidebooks, right? So this one I think is amazing. Uh, Knowing God and Ourselves, Reading Calvin's Institutes Devotionally. And for many people, they're like, how in the world do you read this devotionally? Well, he helps you with that. But anyways, Calvin helped me, I think, kind of realize the importance of, like, the Bible is central, but the sacraments are actually important, too. For those of you who are just like, I'm never going to pick up Calvin's Institutes or, like, Luther or anything like that, this little book I recommend all the time. It's called Truth We Can Touch uh, by Tim Chester. And let me just read... A little bit. This is about like, okay, how are the sacraments actually important in our lives? So uh, he says, in the preaching of the gospel, the good news, God gives us the promise of the forgiveness in a form that we hear. That's the form that comes with clarity because it comes in the form of words. Without those words, we wouldn't understand the gospel. But in the sacraments, God gives us the promise of forgiveness in a form that we can see touch, and even taste. And this means that things like baptism and communion, they preach the gospel to me. My bapti- Baptism does this in a very important way. It's an external act and a physical reality. It's a truth that we can touch. So baptism creates a very powerful promise, and here's why it's important. He says, today you might feel forgiven. You might feel like a new person. You may feel loved by God, but what about tomorrow? Or what about the day when you sin spectacularly? spectacularly, Or when cancer is diagnosed? Or when you're betrayed by a loved one? How will you feel then? Will you feel forgiven when you've sinned? Will you feel like a new person when cancer is eating your body? Will you feel loved when you're unloved? A hope based on our feelings or our circumstances is a hope built on a shaky foundation. It will not survive the storms of life. But our hope is based on God's promise. We have that promise in God's word, but God in his kindness, knowing how frail we are, knowing how battered by life we can be, has also given us his promise in water, bread, and wine. And I love that. It's, a, it's an objective. It's a physical, uh, as, as uh, Augustine says, uh, the sacraments are like a visible word. And uh, so there's something about that. It's beyond just like the words in my own brain, but something I can touch, something I can smell. I was like, wow, this is, this is really kind of big. Like, I, I think this is great. And there was this other little quote that, this is John Calvin, by the way, um, that, that he's citing in here. He's saying, the sacraments, don't, they don't add anything new or different than what we receive in the gospel. We're not getting anything from the sacraments that we don't already have in the gospel. Indeed, the sacraments require the word of God to make meaning of the promises that they embody. But the sacraments do confirm those promises, and they reassure us um, that they apply to us, frail sinners, though we know ourselves to be. And so one person has said, we don't get a different or better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the word of God. But we get that same Christ better with a firmer grasp of the grace uh, that we can get through seeing, touching, feeling, and tasting the love of God. So for me, I don't know if that's helpful to you, but in my feelings ebb and flow all the time. And that's where, like, wow, okay, the people in the 16th century actually thought these were important. The very reformers that you know, have come to really uh, impact the way I view the Bible— they also held baptism and, and communion as something that was really important. I think for us today, in a world that's so um, you know, technological and digital, the sacraments are this physical reminder of the good news of Jesus that have come to mean something important. So truth we can touch, maybe pick up Calvin if you're, if you're daring. Um, All right, so yeah. to the other end of the spectrum, Narnia. <laughs> um, a lot of people I know have read Narnia but they might have read it a really long time ago. And if you've not read any of the Narnia stories as an adult, I would really strongly encourage you to do that because when Lewis wrote these, he wrote them as children's stories, but they are laden with theology. And the older you are, the more that you can see all of the layers that are there. 
And I wanted to just read this little excerpt out of The Silver Chair. The Silver Chair is unbelievably relevant to our culture right now. And in the story, one of the interesting things is the protagonist in this story is a bullied middle school girl, <laughs> which was pretty radical for a white male British academic in the 1950s to be doing. So she is catapulted into this magical land, and she's dying of thirst because she hasn't had anything to drink. And she sees this beautiful stream, but the only problem is there's this enormous lion that is lying right next to the stream. So as if that's not bad enough, the lion looks at her and speaks. And the lion says, are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Um, could I? Would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do drink, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry or even angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It's so good. Oh. Do yourself a favor, read it. We, that's probably my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia, all of them. It's um, so good. And there's a character named Puddleglum, which is yes. just extraordinary. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. All the Narnia books, that's what I recommended last time we did this. I still read them to my children. I just, like, weep all the way through. Um, all right, I'm going to read. Uh, the world is ending out there. But it looks like it is. <laughs> I just turned around. It got really dark and super windy, and that's maybe that's why that guy was so scared coming down the steps. But probably other <laughs> but reasons, too. I don't know. Um, yeah. Prepare to meet your God. Exactly. He was, he was. All right, so three quick books. I have no... Um, quotes, but then I want to get to the one. So uh, one thing that really stood out to me in seminary was understanding how the story of the Bible actually is a unified story. Uh, so one of the great books that I found that's really helpful, much shorter, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Boy. All right. Um, and so I recommend God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. That helped me get kind of the whole, how the Bible fits together as a whole. Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. Maybe there's actually a lot going on right now. <laughs> wow. I think we're okay. Yeah, it, it almost just broke, it almost that, broke that, door. that window. But that would have okay. been a lot louder. <laughs> I think we're focus on and stop focusing on everything else. The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. If you've seen those signs that was like, in this home, we believe love is love, black lives matter, uh, trans rights are human rights. It's kind of like what the secular statement of belief is. She does a great job of honestly and sincerely, charitably engaging these things from a Christian perspective. Uh, and wherever you are, you're going to leave challenged on it. So I love that one. Tim Keller, if you've never heard of him, he has a biography recently that came out on his life. I love that. So we have a lot of different kinds of books, but um, two others that I actually have a quote on that I want to talk about. So these are some of the counseling books that I read in seminary, and Bold Love is one that I think I, I reference a ton uh, in our time, and it talks about what actually is, I mean, we love to talk about love, but what actually is love? What does forgiveness actually mean and the, one of the things I found super helpful from him is you know he he defines forgiveness he, he looks at it but let me just read this little quote he says forgiving someone who hurts us requires humility imagination and courage when our hearts deeply admit that um, that our own sin is at core no less heinous in its direction than our enemies and when we taste the restorative grace of God 
we grow in courage to wisely plan ways of destroying anything that mars beauty in the soul of others. A formula of sorts that can be constructed that gives us direction for loving boldly is this. He says, um, hungering for restoration plus revoking our right to revenge plus pursuing goodness, that equals forgiveness that invites repentance and an opportunity for reconciliation. So one of the things, often like, this is probably the single most book that has helped me in relationships. What does it mean to be reconciled to somebody? Do you just forgive anyone? Do you, do you be reconciled to anyone? Well, in short, he says forgiveness is something that we ought to do no matter what the other person does because it's an attitude of our hearts. But reconciliation is something that involves two people. It involves... Um, basically repentance on the, the part of the other person. And so uh, I found that to be really helpful. There's the best book I've ever read on um, sexual brokenness called Unwanted. So if you ever have struggled with sex, unwanted sexual behavior, hands down the best book I've ever read on this. It actually says, you know, one of the biggest problems is shame that we have to address. Uh, and... I just found, I'd love to talk more about it, but that's enough. So, Unwanted Sexual Behavior uh, by Jay Stringer, an amazing book. We'll leave these up here. So, All right, so this I'm is done. an old fiction book by Elizabeth Googe, who's an author most people have never heard of, who I talked about last time because I'm on a one-man crusade to make her cool again. Uh, <laughs> but this particular book is called The Rosemary Tree, and it's really interesting because this book was in the news um, probably about 10 years ago. Uh, because it hit the bestseller list, even though it was written about 1940-something, but it hit the bestseller list under a different author's name and a different author's title because a woman in India plagiarized the entire book <laughs> word for word, and she everywhere it said church, she substituted temple. Everywhere it said Christian, she substituted Hindu. And it was crazy because the New York Times gave it like this amazing review. The Washington Post gave it this amazing review. Um, the Guardian in the UK gave it this amazing review. And then it came out that literally 96% of the book was word for word plagiarized from the Rosemary Tree. Wow. But one of the things I love about Elizabeth Gooch is she writes um, seriously novels about people that take their spiritual life seriously. So this is just a little quotation from part of that. And uh, what the, this character is uh, musing about something and says, the way God squandered himself had always bothered her and annoyed her. The sky full of wings and only shepherds awake. That golden voice speaking and only a few fishermen there to hear. And perhaps some of the words he spoke carried away on the wind or lost in the sound of the waves lapping against the side of the boat. A thousand blossoms shimmering over the orchard, each a world of wonder all to itself, and then the whole thing blown away on a southwest gale, as though the delicate little worlds were of no value at all. Well, of all the spent thrifts, she would think and then pull herself up. It was not for her to criticize the ways of Almighty God. If he liked to go to all that trouble over the snowflakes, millions and millions of them, their intricate patterns, too small to be seen by human eyes, and melting as soon as made. Well, that was his affair and not hers. All she could do was to try to catch beauty in her window and save from entire waste as much of the squandered beauty as she could. So these books are great. Highly recommend anything by her. Fantastic. All right. I'm, you have, I'm, I'm done. All right. It's Very quickly, go for it. Can We Trust the Gospels? Fabulous book. If, you don't, if you're not convinced whether the Gospels are true or accurate, read this. It's really short. Of course, <laughs> The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, I really want to read this part, but I won't. <laughs> uh, it's Mary and Pippin talking to Frodo and saying, we are your friends, Frodo. And it's just one of the most beautiful things written about friendship ever. And then, since we didn't have a picture book, if you like picture books yes. instead of lots of prose, here's a really great picture book. Um, the Inklings of Oxford, if you're remotely interested 
and Tolkien or Lewis, this is a great book to read because where they lived deeply informed not only their theology and their friendship, but their writing as well. All right. Well, well done. Sorry that was so disjointed. Apparently there's like a tornado coming through. I don't even know, but... Um, what y'all can't see is there's a huge iron table with an umbrella in it that came hurtling through the air and then smashed into the door up there. Now yeah. there's, a, there's a waiter up there. Like, yeah, the waiter's like dealing with So, it. yeah, that was... A lot was happening. Sorry about that. But anyways, take a moment. Uh, let's see if we have any questions. I don't know. Um, and as you do that, I forgot to make an announcement. If you, uh, we have uh, a friend of ours who's coming to uh, Charleston in like August or so. She's in her mid-20s, doesn't really know anybody. Uh, and so she was looking for a roommate. If you happen to know of anybody, she's really sweet. Um, please talk to me afterwards. Like, would love to help her out. Uh, she's trying to find a rooming situation. So I extend that out there. But how, how are we doing on questions? Rex. Tess. Yeah. We're doing well. Um, first of all, people just want to know, is there a list of books, perhaps, that could be sent by email? Yep. Yes, indeed. We, we could do that, and we will do that. We did it last time. Yes. We'll do it again. Yes. All these books we'll email out. So yeah. feel free to peruse it at your interest, but these will be sent via email. Yes, you're welcome. Which means join our email list if you're not on that email list. You can do that on these sheets of paper as well. All right. So first question um, says, I have several friends that are deconstructing. What's the best way to approach that with them? Uh, that is a great question. Deconstructing is a very uh, sort of trendy thing to be doing right now. And I think that a lot of people, um, if you're not familiar with that terminology, generally deconstructing, I think in the context this person means, means someone who had been pursuing the Christian faith and then has uh, began looking at it through an ultra-critical eye and beginning to doubt various parts of it and beginning to walk away from it. Uh, and I think one of the things to do in that situation, if you're close to someone who's going through that process, is to really lean into the relationship, to continue to love that person, to encourage that person to be in worship with you, not to abandon them, um, not to say, I can't believe you're doing that. Um, but I would also point them, if they are interested, um, to talk with people that they can share their deconstructing journey with. It might be somebody like Justin or me or someone else who's an older Christian. Uh, but I think walking that path alone um, is the worst thing that can happen. So staying engaged relationally is really important. Yeah, in my experience, a lot of folks who are deconstructing have been in environments where questions and doubt was really eschewed. I mean, it was definitely... We don't talk about this. We're very dogmatic. You just have to, you know, fall in line, kind of thing. And that's really sad because the church shouldn't be like that. We should be a place. Um, I, you know, I talk. Tim Keller talks about doubt as like antibodies in a body. You need these mm -hmm. sort of things. And so, um, we all have doubts, and we we need to be able to talk about those in a loving, charitable way. But the biggest thing, I just want to echo what you said, which is to do it in community with people. And unfortunately, most people who are deconstructing had such a negative experience relationally within the church that then they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And so I would encourage you, if you're, if you're doing that, uh, or if you, I guess the question was, you have friends who are doing it, the best thing is just what you said, to lean in relationally to them. Don't be taken aback. Don't try to necessarily fix them. Trust that the Holy Spirit's going to work there. But hold firmly to the fact that like Christians have believed this for 2,000 years. There's deep weight and rootedness in the historic faith. And to, you don't have to be defensive or worried, but you can be a place where somebody can actually share what's really going on, and that helps a lot. Yep. Okay. Um, besides the Bible, C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien, what's one book you think everyone should read once in their lifetime? Oh, wow. One book. Besides Lewis and Tolkien, and the Bible, obviously. <clears throat> it's an impossible question for you. It is. And it's probably for me as well. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, all right. I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit. I know what you're thinking. Augustine's Confessions, it really is, like, I mean, it was a book that broke its genre. I mean, it was, like, a thousand years before its time. It was amazing. But what he does in that, I mean, he's probably the most brilliant thinker in the Christian church history, but it's so darn relatable to the everyday Christian life. And so it's just a classic, I mean, it's such a tough question. I mean, I could say read Calvin's Institutes, but, like, that's so massive compared to... Augustine's Confessions is a classic. Read that. And another classic that Justin has in his stack that he didn't talk about, that's probably not the one book, but it is a book, is Les Miserables. Um, that story is one of the best fictional depictions of what the gospel is all about. And there is beauty and truth and goodness that just flows out of that story that I think shows you the heart of what the Christian faith is. I thought it was Los Miserables, but that's okay. Even after you went to France? I realized I couldn't speak French in France, so what's the next word? Por I said por favor. Legit thought it was French. I took six years of French from like first grade. Was that at Le Demago? Did you say por favor? Is that what that place is called? Yes. Oh what man! You called the two maggots. I saw it. I don't want to say what I called it. Um, Sorry. Next question. <laughs> All right. It if sounded so. Cold, deserted island with no wood and only these books. Which book would you turn into a fire? That's a great question. Is there a list of books following, or the books that we talked about? I think it's the books up there. I've got a practical answer. The biggest one yeah, to survive. So like. Institutes or late Miz, I mean, that's that's it, really. Um, I don't know. Things that I knew already, like, uh, or that I've, like. I could burn the Lord of the Rings because I know it. Yeah, so you well. know it by heart. That's what I'm saying. Like, you've become to know it so well yeah. that you're like, all right, it's a part of me. Yeah. Like the Book of Eli, where the guy like knew the whole thing. That's sort of like an imputation. Yeah. That's a tough one. I'd yeah. go with the biggest one. Because yeah. you'd have a lot of just practically. Yeah. Yeah. What's a required reading book from high school or college that you actually enjoy? Crime oh. and punishment. Weird. That's exactly what my was. <laughs> really. But I shouldn't be surprised. No. I, okay. So I actually enjoyed that. I hated every other book in high school. I did read. So a lot of my education. So I'm 35. And I'm going back and reading a lot of the books that I was required to read in high school that I was like, man, I don't want to read this. But um, was it Brothers Karamazov as well? Karamazov. Yeah, yes. that one. Uh, 1984, I read a couple years ago. And holy cow, man, that is actually was so much more interesting to read at 33 than, you know, in whatever it was. 16. But I almost brought Crime and Punishment tonight. A lot of people, um, if you were to Google most important Christian fiction, Crime and Punishment is almost always on the list. Dostoevsky wrote Crime and Punishment as a Christian polemic to show the emptiness and stupidity of the idea of the Ubermensch, which was being propagated by Feuerbach and these other philosophers, sort of the Superman kind of idea. I don't need God. I'm above God. There's no such thing as morality. And the whole book is about how this Raskolnikov guy, who's the protagonist, tries to take things into his own hands and then discovers that, in fact, everything that Christianity teaches is true. Um, it literally quotes like two pages out of the Gospel of John in the main part of the text. Uh, it's an amazing book. That was very restrained. That's a good one. I'm I like Great Gatsby, too. I did like that in high yeah, school. Yeah, that's really good, I don't, yeah. I don't know why I liked it. It's just, anyways. What, what do we got? Advice for being moved at a heart level when reading theologically challenging or insightful books. That's a great question. That is a really great question. I would say one thing to do is to make sure that when you are reading that you are setting yourself up for success. Don't try to read a deep theological book when you're lying in bed after a really long day. 
that is not going to be helpful. Um, read at a time where you can sit up in a chair, have a cup of tea or coffee with you, and read a paragraph at a time. If you are in a place where you're alone, read the paragraph out loud. And as you go through each paragraph, go back and say, what was the main point of that paragraph before you move on to the next thing? Those are things that helped me yeah. about for yeah. you. I w well, I think I was really prepared for this question going to a pretty academic seminary that was like known for its like academic stuff. Um, and I, I was struck, first of all, at like, actually there wasn't this stri straight up dichotomy that I, that I expected. Like somehow reading theological books, I was like, actually the, the, the longer back you go, the more they were writing from a devotional standpoint right. as well. And they're so, really cool. Like you try to yeah. read Bernard of Clairvaux and tell me like that theological work is not devotional. It, it's all devotional. Um, but I will say this, S read slowly, just go slow, don't worry about how much you get done, but read slow, try to understand what he's saying, and, and then chew on it, like a Jolly Rancher, just you know, let it go for a long time, think about it through the day, uh, it's, the, it's a discipline, you actually have to stop and ask the Holy Spirit uh, to show, okay, what does this mean, what's the author trying to teach uh, that's true experientially? How does this connect with my life and my experience uh, as what it means to be human? You know, I think knowing who God is is one of the most practical questions if you just uh, take that extra step of trying to say, all right, what does this then mean for how I live? More often than not, we just read big words and we just keep going and that's it. But if you do the work of stopping and reflecting and meditating, that's where we miss a lot of the the devotional or the experiential benefit of reading some of these things. They're not meant to be read just in a classroom. They're always meant to be read uh, to help us in the Christian life. And so it, it is a discipline to go slow and, and to be reflective and meditative and ask you know, the Holy Spirit to show me, what does this mean? How does this change my life? How does this change uh, my affections or my thoughts? Uh, and two other things I'd add to that is Read with a dictionary at hand or with your phone where you can Google, not scroll through Instagram. Um, but if, it's really easy to skip over words that you don't know what they mean or you think you know but you're not quite sure. It's worth it to look those up. Um, the other thing that I think is the gold standard for doing that kind of reading is if you can find someone else that wants to read that same work and then read it together where you are doing like a chapter a week and then you're meeting to talk about it, that will really help bring it to life. And if you're doing that to ask the person you're reading with to choose one passage that they really love to share with you, one passage that they didn't understand to yeah. share with you and then talk about that. That's so good. I was gonna say mark the places that you kind of got lost or confused and talk about those, talk about something that you really liked as well. You'd be surprised if you've never read any of it, you'll actually be surprised how much it's... Yeah, it's much more accessible than most people think. The, the best books are the ones who've made it throughout the ages, you know, so a lot of the things that we brought were pretty recent, but yeah. All right, uh, a couple do more. you have any fiction book recommendations that are not by Lewis or Tolkien? Uh, well, Elizabeth Googe is fiction, uh, so that's not by Lewis or Tolkien. Um, I am a big fan of Flannery O'Connor. Um, Flannery O'Connor is mostly short stories. Uh, if you are not used to reading her, you might want to also get like a companion book that helps explain, but she's a deeply Christian writer. Um, I'm also a big fan of uh, a book that was written, gosh, probably 30 years ago now. It's called uh, a Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, which is uh, a book that was later made into a movie that was called Simon Birch. Some of y'all might know that movie, but um, A Prayer for Owen Meany is a um, novel by John Garth, that is, John Irving rather, that is really uh, reflective and asks a lot of really important questions about faith. So that's really good. Another book that's really terrific is The Gentleman from Moscow uh, by Amor Tolles. Uh, that's about a guy who uh, is sentenced by the Russians uh, right after the Russian Revolution. 
to live the rest of his life in a hotel where he'll be shot if he ever leaves the hotel. And it's about his creating this beautiful life within the confines of this one building. I could go on and on. Yeah, we could. I a couple, about a year or two ago, I bought like all, pretty much all the classics, which are, they come in this really nice, like I found this, the, the layman's rub. Mm -hmm. uh, that was they all, well pronounced, Justin. That's right. That was as good as I could do. I tried to be like you. Um, but you think about like the uh, Homer and like the Iliad, the Odyssey. Um, we had uh, you were talking about Jane Eyre earlier. Yep. That's a that's Pilgrim's a great Progress. one. Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Charles Dickens. Those are some <coughs> great ones. Dante's Inferno is actually that, there was a book I was reading about how Dante can change your life pretty much, and that was a great. Um, great fiction book as well, but just don't like the prejudice against Lewis and Tolkien. I don't know who wrote this question, but I mean, what's the deal? I'm just kidding. No, those are good questions. Um, what are your thoughts on reading non-Christian books? I think reading non-Christian books is really important in two different levels. I think reading fiction that's by people who are not Christians uh, can be really a good way of kind of getting inside the head of somebody that has a very different worldview. I also think that it's great to read books by people who are opposed to Christianity on various topics. Uh, because understanding where people that you fundamentally disagree with, where they're coming from, instead of just dismissing them, uh, I think is really important. One of my favorite things to read for people because if you're a priest, sometimes people will come to you and say, I'm an atheist, um, I would love to talk with you about why you are a Christian. Um, and one of the things that I love to recommend to read together is Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian, uh, which I think is actually one of the best arguments for Christianity ever, because it's really poorly reasoned. And if you read that and sort of unpack what's going on, uh, it can be uh, very useful. But I think there are lots of good reasons to read things by people who are not Christians. I would put a caveat to that. Um, books that are essentially pornography, which there are a lot of out there right now, I just don't find to be helpful or useful in any way. Yeah, yeah. it goes back to, I think non-Christians don't have the claim on truth beauty and goodness like right. there are a lot of non-christians who can tap like because of god's general revelation they can create beautiful things i mean some of these stories um that we love written by non-christians but tap into something about this beautiful story that is ultimately rooted in in god's um god's story and revelation i i actually was going to bring several books that i was really excited about this summer that i ended up i had too many already to bring but um I enjoy reading, yeah, as Brian mentioned, uh, well, not just poorly reasoned, but, but well-reasoned um, arguments that people have against, against Christianity or Christian ethics, that sort of thing, and, and engaging with that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to do. We don't need to be afraid of engaging people who, who are different uh, from us. And so, you know, whether it's uh, critical race theory or sex, gender, that sort of whole conversation, being able to read some of these things and, and have a conversation uh, so that you can actually articulate the best of what the other person's trying to say. Uh, usually they'll pick up on something good at least, even if like they're just completely way off base. There'll, there'll be something good in there. Um, but it's just not helpful just to dismiss somebody out of hand without engaging with what they've right. written. Yeah. All right, I think that's unfortunately all the time we have. It's a little bit after. Hey, uh, Market Street's like underwater right now, so we might be here for a while. But that was that was a fun one. I'm so glad it was we were fun for us. Thank y'all for hanging out. Thanks for sticking around. These books will be up here. Um, take the sheets with you because they've got the summer schedule. I'll email it out to. And we're happy to talk more about any of these books. Totally. So, thanks for yeah. coming out. Tonight. Thanks for coming.